J.C. Ryle's Devotional Thoughts on the Gospel of Luke Section 39 Jesus and John the Baptist Luke chapter 7 verses 18 through 23 And the disciples of John showed him of all these things. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues, and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. The message which John the Baptist sent to our Lord in these verses is particularly instructing when we consider the circumstances under which it was sent. John the Baptist was now a prisoner in the hands of Herod. When John was in prison, he heard what Christ was doing. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. John's life was drawing to a close. His opportunities of active usefulness were ended. A long imprisonment or a violent death were the only prospects before him. Yet even in these dark days, we see this holy man maintaining his old ground as a witness to Christ. He is the same man that he was when he cried, Behold the Lamb of God. To testify of Christ was his continual work as a preacher at liberty. To send men to Christ was one of his last works as a prisoner in chains. We should mark in these verses the wise forethought which John exhibited about his disciples before he left the world. He sent some of them to Jesus with a message of inquiry. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? He doubtless calculated that they would receive such an answer as would make an indelible impression on their minds, and he was right. They got an answer in deeds as well as words. They received an answer which probably produced a deeper effect than any arguments which they could have heard from their master's lips. We can easily imagine that John the Baptist must have felt much concern about the future course of his disciples. He knew their ignorance and weakness in the faith. He knew how natural it was for them to regard the disciples of Jesus with feelings of jealousy and envy. He knew how likely it was that a petty party spirit would creep in among them and make them keep aloof from Christ when their own master was dead and gone. Against this unhappy state of things, he makes provision as far as possible while he is yet alive. He sends some of them to Jesus that they may see for themselves what kind of teacher he is and not reject him unseen and unheard. He takes care to supply them with the strongest evidence that our Lord was indeed the Messiah. Like his divine master, having loved his disciples, he loved them to the end. And now, perceiving that he must soon leave them, he strives to leave them in the best of hands. He does his best 
to make them acquainted with Christ. What an instructive lesson we have here for ministers and parents and heads of families, for all, in short, who have anything to do with the souls of others. We should endeavor, like John the Baptist, to provide for the future spiritual welfare of those we leave behind when we die. We should often remind them that we cannot always be with them. We should often urge them to beware of the broad way when we are taken from them and they are left alone in the world. We should spare no pains to make all who in any way look up to us acquainted with Christ. Happy are those ministers and parents whose consciences can testify on their deathbeds that they have told their hearers and children to go to Jesus and follow him. We should mark, secondly, in these verses, the peculiar answer which the disciples of John received from our Lord. We're told that at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. And then he said unto them, Go your way, and tell John the things you have seen and heard. He makes no formal declaration that he is the Messiah who was to come. He simply supplies the messengers with facts to repeat to their master and sends them away. He knew well how John the Baptist would employ these facts. He would say to his disciples, Behold in him who worked these miracles, the prophet greater than Moses. This is the one whom you must hear and follow when I am dead. This is indeed the Christ. Our Lord's reply to John's disciples contains a great practical lesson which we shall all do well to remember. It teaches us that the right way to test the value of churches and ministers is to examine the works they do for God and the fruits they bring forth. Would we know whether a church is true and trustworthy? Would we know whether a minister is really called of God and sound in the faith? We must apply the old rule of Scripture, you shall know them by their fruits. As Christ would be known by his works and doctrine, so must true churches of Christ and true ministers of Christ be known. When the dead in sin are not quickened, and the blind are not restored to sight, and the poor have no glad tidings proclaimed to them, then we may generally suspect that Christ's presence is lacking. Where he is, he will be seen and heard. Where he is, there will be more than empty profession, forms, ceremonies, and a show of religion. There will be actual, visible, saving work in hearts and lives. We should mark, lastly, in these verses, the solemn warning which our Lord gave to John's disciples. He knew the danger in which they were. He knew that they were disposed to question his claim to be the Messiah because of his lowly appearance. They saw no signs of a king about him, no riches, no royal apparel, no guards, no courtiers, and no crown. They only saw a man, to all appearance, as poor as any one of themselves, attended by a few fishermen and publicans. Their pride may have rebelled at the idea that such a one as this could be the long-awaited Messiah, 
It seemed incredible. There must be some mistake. Such thoughts as these, in all probability, passed through their minds. Our Lord read their hearts and dismissed them with a searching caution. Blessed, he said, is he who does not take offense at me. The warning is one that is just as needful now as it was when it was delivered. So long as the world stands, Christ and his gospel would be a stumbling block to many. To hear that we're all lost and guilty sinners and cannot save ourselves, to hear that we must give up our own righteousness and trust in one who is crucified between two thieves, to hear that we must be content to enter heaven side by side with wicked sinners and harlots and to owe all our salvation to free grace, this is always offensive to the natural man. Our proud hearts do not like it. We are offended. Let the caution of these verses sink down deeply into our memories. Let us take heed that we're not offended by Jesus or his message. Let us beware of being offended, either by the humbling doctrines of the gospel or the holy practice which it enjoins on those who receive it. Secret pride is one of the worst enemies of man. It will prove at last to have been the ruin of thousands of souls. Thousands will be found to have had the offer of salvation, but to have rejected it. They did not like the terms. They would not stoop to enter in at the straight gate. They would not humbly come as sinners to the throne of grace. In a word, they were offended. And then will appear the deep meaning in our Lord's words, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me.